0: we'll begin in Matthew chapter 4. Look with me at verse number 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse number 18. We have here the first commission of a disciple by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's actually four men that are set apart for, for ministry here in verse number 18. The Bible says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Going on from thence, he saw two other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Uh, Lord, I I, I don't know if I love you the most today that I've ever loved you before, but I know you love me as much today as ever you've loved me. You've been faithful to me today, Lord. Lord, you have kept your promises. Not one of them has fallen to the ground. Lord, you have seen to my every need. And I just want to take a moment and praise you for your goodness in my life. Now, help us as we break the bread of life, Lord, to have a hungry attitude. Help us as we come to the word of God to have a self-reflective, self-examinating attitude. Lord, let us not be looking outwardly. And let this not just be an academic exercise, Lord, but may it be communion with you. May it be a meaningful, powerful experience as we open our heart to the truth of the the word of God and allow you to have your will and way in us. And Lord, we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Father, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. With the Lord's help, the first thought I want us to look at tonight is the beginning of discipleship. How does a person become And what is it about their life that in the immediate present moment when they come to know Christ, changes? Now, there's only a handful of the disciples whose commission is mentioned in the Word of God. Now, uh, we're told that all of them, of course, were called by our Lord into this life of discipleship. But really, Philip and Andrew and uh, Simon Peter and Nathaniel and Matthew are the only ones that were given a real detailed picture of what it looked like when they came to know Christ. And James and John, of course, here in our text. The rest of the disciples were not really told much about how they came to be a disciple. But here in this sort of in germ form, we have a picture of how a person becomes a disciple. And can I just put very right out the gate? You say, preacher, how does a person become a disciple? Number one, by becoming a Christian. Uh, We don't educate people into salvation. They must be one to Christ. A person becomes a Christian by receiving Christ, not by exercising uh, some sort of aptitude in an academic pursuit, not by just going through the motions of a course uh, trained to teach them the fundamentals of Christianity, nor by passing through the baptismal waters or joining a church. What we find in the life of the Lord Jesus and when He called His disciples is we find that they had to make a choice in regards to their life, the direction they were going, and they, if we can put it real plainly, had to choose Christ Above all else, you know, even though there's a lot of things that shift between this moment and the dispensation you and I are sitting in, there's one thing that has not changed. A person had to come to Christ to become a disciple. And so I want to say a word first tonight about the recruiting of disciples. And we could say that it begins with three things. Number one, I would say it begins with a new birth. A person becomes a disciple of Christ because they're born into the family of God. They have turned their back on dependence upon self and they have come to Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. Now you say, well now preacher, I don't really see that in our text. Well, it's there if you squint a little bit and look closely and consider the words that the Holy Ghost uses. Think about how these men are found. Uh, these men are found in the pursuit and activity of their life. The Bible says about Peter and Andrew that they they are casting a net. In the sea, they did not anticipate this day being any different than any other day that they had lived. But then Jesus walked by, and everything changed in their life. And they laid their nets down and began a whole new pursuit in their life. Uh, in other words, they looked and they said, "You know, our life lacks meaning. Our life lacks purpose. Our life lacks satisfaction. In fact, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, what they were doing was emblematic of what any lost person is doing. For them, it may have been uh, casting a net for other people. It's just." Cash and a paycheck. For other people, it's pursuing hobbies. But here's one thing they learned. They could keep casting nets in the water, but they were never going to fish all the fish out of the sea. It was mundanity. It was just repetition. They were going through the motions. In fact, we could say it this way. What they were doing was just what they had to do to keep living so that they could keep on doing what they had to do in order to keep living. They're going and they're working a job and there's no shame in that. Don't misunderstand me. The Lord uh, has uh, much to say that is noble about work. But I would say this, that if all our life is about is just casting a net in and dragging a net out, man, we're missing what God put us on this earth for. They were just going through the motions, just living, just making their way through. And then inevitably what happens? Verse number 21 says that when Jesus found James and John, they were not casting their nets in. What were they doing? They were mending their nets. In other words, this thing that for a fisherman is representative of his life. The net was the thing that, that helped them make their living, that helped them survive. And what invariably happens? Well, just as our life does, these nets begin to tear and decay and fall into disrepair. You know, when a person gets born again is when they start to see the holes in their nets. When they start to realize that try as they may, they're never going to be able to keep it all together. Try as they may, they're never going to be able in their own strength to live a life that pleases and satisfies them, much less that pleases and satisfies God. So we have a picture here of a lost person coming to know Christ, tending, working with this net that's representative of their life and all they're doing is casting it in and dragging it out and then finding that in the process it doesn't stay whole and it doesn't get any better. In fact, it just degrades and declines and decays and they say, you know, there has to be something in life better than this. We know that they received Christ because in their very action, they're exercising faith. This was the thing that gave them substance in their life. And when they laid those nets down and turned around and walked away from them, they were trusting that Jesus could meet their needs and could take care of them. Now I used the phrase a moment ago, a new birth, because there's another place in the gospel in uh, John chapter 3 when a Pharisee comes to Jesus by night and asks, uh, well he doesn't even really ask anything, he shows up and tries to flatter Jesus, tells him we know that thou art a teacher sent from God for no man can do the things that thou doest except God be with him. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, except man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. So though it's not found in our text, what we find is this, that Jesus gives to Nicodemus the mechanics of what we're seeing the effect of in Matthew chapter four. Jesus explains to Nicodemus what this process is and looks like. And in other words, it's not just signing up for deeper level Christianity. That's not what discipleship is. Discipleship is not sounding the depths of deeper commitment. Discipleship is to be the standard operating facet and attitude of every believer. But here's the problem. We've got a lot of people in the world that want to be disciples that are still lost. We've got people in the world, they want to turn over a new leaf, but they have no new life. And so it begins by a person receiving Christ as their savior. So it begins with a new birth. Number two, it begins with a new direction. The Bible says in verse 19, he saith unto them, follow me. In other words, don't just stay going the direction you're going. Now I want you to change your direction and I want you to follow me. Here's what discipleship is, if we really want to boil it down. Uh, it is witness with Christ. It is being close to him. It is emulating and modeling his behavior that we observe as we watch the meticulous and majestic nature of his life. Now, this happened explicitly with the disciples. They physically observed and beheld him. But you know what even happens with us in this dispensation? We don't follow him by following his footsteps. We follow him by following his word but it changes the direction of your life. You're no longer satisfied to just keep going, drifting listlessly down life's river. Now you've got a new direction you want to go in. I would say this, when a person becomes a disciple of Christ, it is a life-changing experience. Now, it does not mean they do not backslide. does not mean that they do not disobey the Lord. And in fact, you'll find no shortage of examples of the disciples, not just Simon Peter, by the way, but the others as well, uh, having lapses in their trust in the Lord. and, And lapses, when I say faith, I don't mean they lost their salvation, but I mean lapses in their commitment to the Lord, lapses in their willingness to follow him. So no one's suggesting a person can't disobey the Lord after they've been saved and after they become a disciple of Christ. But we are saying that if a person becomes a disciple of Christ, it's going to mean a change in the direction that they've been going. They are going to change and begin to follow him. And then notice what he says next. He saith unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We see not only a new birth and new direction, but we see a new purpose to their life. Now, the words that the Lord uses are not by accident. He draws a stark line between how they had been employing their time and how they would now be employing their time. And he said, you're going to take those same concepts, but instead of going out and fishing for men, the same way that you took those nets, and no matter how many times you cast them in, you were never going to catch all the fish. Well, in the same respect, you're going to take that same zeal, that same dedication, that same work ethic. I don't know about you, man, being a fisherman's hard work. It's not easy work. It was long hours. Hey, later on, we'd be told that they toiled all night. It was hard work. So he's saying, now you're going to take that same level of energy and investment, but you're going to put it into eternal matters. When a person becomes a disciple of Christ, it doesn't mean they quit their job. doesn't mean they let their house fall into disrepair. It doesn't mean they quit mowing the yard. doesn't mean they uh, quit having hobbies. But what it does mean is the prevailing purpose of their life is no longer just throwing the net in and drawing it out only to get a temporal result. Now, all of a sudden, he took that same energy and turned it to eternal spiritual matters. He said, you're still going to work, but you're going to work for something that pays a lot better and lasts a lot longer than that drought of fishes that you're pulling in. So in other words, when a person becomes a disciple, their life becomes about something bigger than merely surviving life. I fear that much of Christianity today is preoccupied with the notion of merely surviving life. And what I mean by that is, again, working a job just to work a job because that's what you have to do to pay bills, to live in a house because that's what you have to do. Now, again, none of that is to be derogatory towards those responsibilities. And our Lord was not either. But let me tell you something. God didn't save you just so that you could live out your uh, three score and ten and, and, and make it to a ripe old age. He saved you so that you could be used of him for his glory and for his purpose. So he gives you a new purpose in your life. So probably with the Lord's help, we'll look at the recruitment of disciples on the first day. And then with the Lord's help, we'll look at the idea of the resources of disciples. Man, I'm glad when the Lord calls someone to be a disciple, He doesn't just push them out there and give them no resources. i tell you this, I didn't in my lost condition have what it takes to be a Christian. And this is why Christianity, divorced from the new birth, has to pervert the concept of what Christianity is. Because you can't be a Christian without the Spirit of Christ. You can't do what a Christian needs to do without the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And that's why our Lord granted to His disciples, gave to them, bestowed upon them the resources that they would need. Now, we could probably talk endlessly, couldn't we? I mean, he's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. But we find that there are three things that are emphasized in our Lord's relationship with his disciples that regard our resources. The first one that I noticed was in Luke chapter 11. I want to read four verses there. If you've got quick thumbs, you can get there before I'm done reading or you can just listen. Luke chapter 11, verse one says this. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now notice the usage of the word disciples there. He says now John had disciples and he taught those disciples to pray. And they're saying now we're your disciples so we want to pray the way that you pray. He said unto them, when ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, the first resource that is given to every child of God is that of prayer. He taught his disciples how to pray. You know why? Because if you're going to be an effective disciple of Christ, you're going to have to pray. No man has ever carried out the will of God without prayer. It takes prayer so much so that even our perfect, immaculate Savior, his chief activity was that of prayer. We find when he had time to himself, whatever that phrase means, uh, that gets real abstract when you have kids. Uh, whatever that phrase time to yourself means, what was he doing? He was praying. He was talking to the Lord. He would speak conversationally. He would speak familiarly with his father. He would speak intimately with him. He would speak practically with him. In other words, he was always praying. And he told his disciples, he said, if you're going to be the kind of disciple you need to be, you're going to have to pray. Now, we could take the time we want tonight, but you could go and look at how that thought develops further in Luke chapter 11 when he teaches them certain principles and concepts of prayer. But let it just stand right here in the moment that when his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he didn't say, oh, you don't need prayer. Instead, he leaned into it and said, you know what? You need to know how to pray because if you're going to be an effective disciple, you've got to communicate with your heavenly father. We've got to pray if we're going to be a disciple. And then I thought about John, the book of John, and, and our Lord's words to his disciples. And I just picked an ensemble of verses. We really could have read a lot of it, but for time's sake, we won't. But listen to what our Lord says in John chapter 14. Listen to some statements he makes about discipleship and their relationship to him. In verse 15, he looks at his disciples and he says this, If you love me, keep my commandments. Down in verse 21, he says this, He that hath my commandments... And keepeth them. He it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 15. He said. If ye keep my commandments. ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments. And abide in his love. And then in chapter 13. He says this in verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you. That ye love one another. Even as I have loved you. That ye also love one another. By this shall all men know. That ye are. my disciples if you have love one to another. We often hear that phrase quoted in that context of love, and that's appropriate, that's biblical, that is the context of it. He's saying, people are going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. But how is it that we love one another? Well, we love one another by keeping His commandments. John further reinforces this thought in 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. So you say, preacher, what are the resources a disciple has? Well, the first is prayer. The second is the Word of God. We could say it this way. The first is supplication. The second is the scriptures. The first is communication. The second is commandments. A person has never been a fit disciple of Christ without following the word of God. I'll tell you this, and and, and this runs uh, completely cross-grain to the concept of the world. Christ is not looking for innovative people. He's looking for obedient people. Uh, God's not setting up in heaven trying to scratch his head, figuring out what's going to be the next thing that draws him in. He knows what he wants out of his people, and he has told us what he wants out of our life. And now it is to us to obey those commandments. It's the pride of man that would think that we could figure out a better way to be a disciple than the, the very Lord and Master has told us we should be. Now, listen, uh, obedience is what God expects out of us. So he's given us the word of God. And if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you're going to need the word of God. So much so, and I said this a moment ago, that being a disciple, what is it? It's withness with Christ. It's spending time with him. Well, remember, at that time that Christ walked the earth, he was the living incarnation of the word of God. As they spent time with him, they were spending time with the word of God when well, the same way you and I as disciples of Christ, we spend time with Christ by spending time in the word of God. You can't be a disciple without reading your Bible. You can't be a disciple without obeying your Bible. You can't be a disciple without living this book. So uh, he gave him supplication in scriptures. But then listen to what he says in John chapter number 14. Verse 15 he says this. We already read this a moment ago. But he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Down in verse 25 he says this these things have I spoken unto you being yet present with you but the comforter which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And then he reinforced this in Acts chapter number 1 verse 8 he said but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So the first thing he gave them was supplication, and then scriptures, but then he gave him of his spirit. We could say it this way, that he gave him communication, commandments, and then the comforter. He gave them the spirit of God to indwell them, to empower them, and to lead them in the path of discipleship. There's probably no more neglected truth in modern-day Christianity. And there's probably no truth that in its absence provides more discouragement, disheartenment, and disorientation to a new Christian than this truth. We become a disciple of Christ. We live out a life of discipleship as we follow and obey the Spirit of God in His direct, practical leadership of our life. You cannot be the disciple that God desires for you to be if you neglect, ignore or disregard the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It is literally the living of the life of Christ through you. The exercising of his will in our life in a practical way. You say, preacher, how does that look? Well, when the Spirit of God says, go here, you go there. And therefore, you are living out the will of God. When he says, say this, you say this. When he says, say that, say that. When he says, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. And therefore, the will of God is being exercised in your life. If I was preaching this as a normal message, I'll tell you what I call this message is back to basics. But how often do we depart from this fundamental truth of the Christian life? We begin to believe that we can somehow live the Christian life without Him. Almost like a quarterback trying to call plays from the huddle instead of listening to what the coach is instructing them. We think we have a good enough sense of what God expects out of us and what this book expects out of us that we can just live the Christian life without listening to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Therein we find much powerlessness, we find much discouragement, we find much failure. God has so designed it that you can't be the Christian that you need to be and disregard the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He—that's not a mistake. That's not a flaw. That's not an oversight. That is the deliberate design of God that you need to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And therein, the Spirit of Christ, which is the Spirit of God, will exercise jurisdiction over your life and will live out or flesh out the life, attitude, and spirit of Christ in you. So He's given us of His Spirit. He doesn't leave us wondering. But he tells us how we are to live, that we follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Matthew 16 with me. And I, I, this probably the second half will go a little quicker than the first half. I say that. That's probably not true. But we'll do our best. Matthew chapter 16. And I want to say a word. Uh, the third day probably our teachers will deal with the idea of the requirements of disciples. What things are expected out of a man when he is a disciple? Now, we could go down a laundry list of of practical truths in our life. We're to be faithful to church, we're to read the Word of God, we're to pray, we're to witness to people. I think most of us have a pretty good apprehension that those are the activities we'll be engaged in. But in the larger concept of how a person lives, their attitude, I would say there are two requirements that are given to our life or maybe two sets of requirements, two categories. In Matthew 16, listen to what the Lord says in verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and loses? own soul, Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I would say, number one, there is an inward requirement in our life. We have to be willing to mortify self and allow the life of Christ to be preeminent in us. No man ever lived for himself and lived for Christ at the same time. You're going to have to make a choice. That's what Christ meant when he said, you can try to follow me, but you're not going to be able to unless you will first deny yourself because yourself does not want to follow me. Your flesh does not want to follow the Lord's leadership. So you're going to have to make a choice in your life. And what does that look like? Well, he says, take up his cross. Now, that's interesting. He doesn't say take up my cross. He says, take up his cross. What does he mean? Well, he means mortifying self. And by the way, we somehow never talk about this, but you know, there's some context here. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet when he says this. And his disciples would not have been aware he was going to die on a cross yet. Uh, and so when he says cross, that's identified with the Roman form of capital punishment, of of executing a known uh, criminal, a malcontent, a wicked person. And what he's saying is you have to recognize that you and your flesh are a wicked person and you can't rely and lean upon yourself. And then you have to be willing to pass sentence over yourself and say self is not good enough and crucify self, execute self, not literally, of course, but spiritually and, and figuratively and instead follow me in my leadership. So there's an inward requirement. We have to mortify self. But then turn over to Luke chapter nine. Look with me. There are some outward requirements as well. In other words, this is going to manifest itself outwardly. And a whole message could be preached just on this thought. So we'll just do a flyby of it because time won't permit us to go in depth. In Luke chapter nine, three men come to Jesus And uh, these three men all wanted to be disciples. And they all professed that they would have been willing to be disciples. But there are some things that that hung them up about the process. Verse 57, it says, It came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go, bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And verse 62, Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, each one of these examples has their own salient points. But can I just notice as a summarizing thought what the Lord says in verse 62? Because I think it really scoops all of these men and their situations together. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if a person is going to be a disciple of Christ, there's some things they're going to have to turn their back on. There's some things they are going to have to be willing to walk away from. They're going to have to be willing to walk away from a feeling that their own strength and their own ability and their own security can be provided for through their own means. Uh, That's the first man's problem. He says, I'll go anywhere you want. Jesus says, "Will will you go anywhere that I want, even if I don't tell you where it is that you might be going? Are you willing to follow me when you don't have all the pieces of the plan? Are you willing to trust me even when you don't know? We may wake up one morning having slept in this bed and we may go and you may not have a clue where we're headed to. This man turned around and walked away because he wanted more stability than that in life. The next man, it's interesting uh, the way he says this. He says, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And we pointed this out in times past that if this man's father was dead and if this man had not yet buried him, this man would not be here. So this man's not saying, my father's poor, pitiful body's getting cold out there on the slab, Lord, and, and just give me 20 minutes, go bury him. What he's saying is, my father, I have responsibilities to him. And I can't just abandon him to go follow you. In other words, we can't allow the temporal responsibilities of life if they interfere with our responsibilities to the Lord to stop us from serving God. But then notice what the man says in verse 61. Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. That's a funny way to say it, isn't it? We'd use the word redundant there. If you say at my house, you don't really have to say at home. If you say at home, you don't really have to say at my house. But this betrays where the man's frame of mind was. He says at my home, at my house. In other words, he's getting a little nostalgic. He's saying, you know, I just can't imagine turning around and walking away from those earthly connections. I'm thankful the Lord doesn't make you abandon every earthly connection. But you better believe if you're going to be a disciple, your heavenly connection has to be preeminent above your earthly connections. Uh, It doesn't mean the Lord's not going to let you keep a relationship with your mama and daddy and loved ones and friends and all that. God doesn't begrudge that. Uh, But it does mean that if, if we're put in a place of having to choose, it's really no choice at all. We choose Christ because He's worthy. So we see the requirements of disciples. And then finally, we'll close tonight. Turn with me to Matthew 28. I want to talk to you for a moment about the replication of disciples. So we've learned how we become a disciple. We've learned what we're given to be a disciple. And we learned what's asked of us in our life of discipleship. But now, how do we take that and make other disciples? You see, this was never the intention that it just be limited to one. But always that these men would go out and would would reach other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like, and what is our responsibility to that? Well, in Matthew 28, the Lord gives what we commonly call the Great Commission. And he says in verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we have here the process for replicating disciples, making new disciples. And it basically involves three things. Notice, number one, it involves reaching. He says, go ye therefore. He doesn't say sit back and wait on them. He says, go out and find them. You go to where they're at and reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that tells me that the life of a disciple is an active life. It's not a passive life. It's not just me living my best life now and waiting for a sinner to come trip over my front steps and get born again. But rather, it's me actively going out and looking for people that I can share the gospel with. We're not going out and sharing the gospel. And by the way, I and I'm for, man, I'm for organized soul winning. I'm for disorganized soul winning. I don't even care. I'm just for people soul winning. All right. But this does not have to be in some church sanction uh, opportunity of ministry. That's certainly not a bad thing. We have our new movers ministry and things like that. And I encourage you to get involved in those things. But this really, I mean, listen, we're not just a disciple when we go out on a 15 passenger van to knock a door any more than we're just a disciple. When we walk in the doors of the church to worship the Lord, this thing of being a disciple is something that that saturates our life day in and day out. Therefore, we ought to always be reaching people with the gospel. So it involves reaching. Number two, it involves preaching. Now, the word preaching can be taken in a couple different contexts. We use it today most commonly with the idea of a pastor getting up and exhorting people through the word of God. And that's not inappropriate. That's a biblical definition of preaching. But when our Lord used the term teach here and in other places, in Mark's gospel he uses the term preach, what he's talking about is communicating the fundamental truths of Christianity and of the gospel. In other words, we could call it this, sharing the gospel. So he says this, teach all nations, baptize, and this is how we know that, by the way, because he goes on to say, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. So he's obviously talking about going out and reaching lost people because he's saying you're going to go out and you're going to teach them these things. When they respond to the truth of the gospel, you are then going to take the next step, which is to baptize them in obedience to the truth of the word of God, not as a part of salvation, but in light of their trusting the Lord as Savior. What he's saying is this, not only are we trying to reach, preacher, we're reaching people. There are churches all over that reach people. They reach people and put food in their belly. They reach people and put shoes on their feet. They reach people and they pay their KUB bill. And they they reach people and and they try to help them get off drugs. and, And I don't guess I'm against any of those things. I wish they'd pay my KUB bill. But other than that, I don't begrudge them anything. But that's not what God called us to. Now, sometimes those things can be a means for what we are talking about here. And I have no problem with that. We support the trivets up on the Indian reservation. They do a lot of what you call humanitarian or philanthropic work. They, they give food and, and, and they give supplies and toiletries. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's a great thing. But all that should be a means to the end of, of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. That's our primary preeminent fundamental calling and commission. When he said, I'll make you fishers of men, he didn't say, I'll, I'll make you cleaners up of men. He didn't say, I'll make you, I'll make you uh, proselyters of men. He said, I'll make you fishers of men. A great many churches today uh, are more occupied with trading fish from their fish tanks than they are going out and being fishers of men. But the reality is our responsibility is to go find lost people and share the gospel with them to communicate clearly to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that should produce not in all of them because not everybody's going to get saved, but those that do receive Christ that ought to produce then that we baptize them afterwards in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost now of course, there's much Pauline church truth that's not yet dealt with uh, at the point when the Lord says this that involves them being a part of a local body of believers, and none of that is at the expense of that Pauline truth. But this is being distilled down to a fundamental concept. And he's saying you ought to go out, find where they're at and share the gospel with them. And then he says this in verse 20. So it involves reaching. It involves preaching. But verse 20, and I'll be done tonight, he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So it involves reaching and preaching, but then it involves teaching. Is there a difference between the teach in verse 19 and the teach in verse 20? I believe there is. And I believe the reason we can tell that is by what the response is of the people. He says in verse number 19, when you teach all nations, you're going to then baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. That obviously means sharing the gospel with them. But in verse 20, he doesn't say just share the gospel. He says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, that responsibility of discipleship does not end when a person gets born again. In many ways, it begins. When a person gets born again. It intensifies. When a person gets born again. And this by the way. Is why we never graduate. From discipleship. We're always a disciple of Christ. You say. Why is that preacher? Because ain't none of us. Learned at all. We all need to be taught. The truth of the word of God. But it also means. As you win people to Christ. As you share the gospel with them. It should not end. Just when they've prayed. And received Christ. As their savior. It shouldn't end. Even when they have been baptized. It should continue on taking and and nurturing and and teaching and and imparting to them the truth of the Word of God. And by the way, listen, and that's how new believers get plugged into church, by the way. Uh, It's not through the coffee and it's not through the music and it's not through the drama plays. It's through discipleship. It's through relationships being built between believers as they teach the Word of God one to another. That's how people get plugged in in the house of God. Chances are in your life that's how you got plugged in. You got born again, and then you probably got involved in a Sunday school class. You probably started going to a Bible study. You probably had somebody, maybe the person that won you to the Lord, that took an interest in your life, and they became a friend to you, began to teach you the truth of the Word of God. What were they doing? Whether they knew it or not, they were discipling you. They were trying to teach you the truth of God. So I want you to pray for us while we're up at camp. Listen, before we do that, I want you to pray in your own life. Because the reality is, discipleship is not just a camp topic. It's not just a new Christian topic. It's not a new convert thing. But rather it is to be the substance of the commission of the Christian. What God has called us to do. And what you ought to ask yourself is a twofold question. One, am I being a good disciple? Am I being a good disciple? Am I doing the things that a disciple would do? And that includes things like leaning on the leadership of the Holy Spirit, studying and and, and seeking to learn the Word of God, going and sharing the gospel with others. Am I being a good disciple? Number two, am I seeking to make good disciples out of other people that come to know Christ? Am I personally investing in their life, trying to share with them the Word of God? I don't know about you. I know my life. Man, there's places I need to work on stuff. There's places I need to tighten things up. There's places I need to give more attention. So I want you to be open to what the Lord would do these next few moments as we have an invitation. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. Father, I pray you'd help us in these next moments to be responsive to the truth of the Word of God. Let us not just sit and academically observe but let us absorb and obey the truth that's been given to us and let it start in our heart, our mind, our life as we seek to commit ourselves to a greater life of obedience and discipleship under you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word of God. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.